Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela, coming to you for this Freed Way Thinker edition uh, from my commute and actually my commute home. But don't worry, I haven't actually started driving yet. I'm going to read something, <clears throat> but I'm being safe. I'm not reading while I drive my car. I'm in my car, but I'm parked and not moving, so it's okay. Um, I want to talk about something that has come up several times in several different ways in my debate with Aaron Ra, the follow-up conversation on his YouTube channel, in listening to <clears throat> the debate he had um, with Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy, which uh, I'm actually on my way to go record a, a joint conversation with him and possibly Robert Rowe um, at, at Sentinel Apologetics, recapping some of our conversations and uh, frustrations in, in dealing with some of Ra's arguments. But it reminded me of something. Um, he didn't actually bring up this analogy, but he said a couple times, you know, the evidence that that uh, that can't be empirically verified or that explains everything can't function as an explanation. And it reminded me of John Wisdom. Yes, that's not his name. I'm not allegorizing someone as wisdom. His name is John Wisdom. He gives us the parable in his article called Gods, and he writes this. He writes, once upon a time, two explorers came upon a clearing in the jungle. In the clearing were growing many flowers and many weeds. One explorer says, some gardener must tend this plot. <clears throat> the other disagrees. There's no gardener. So they pitched their tents and set up a watch. No gardener is ever seen. But perhaps he's an invisible gardener. So they set up a barbed wire fence. They electrify it. They patrol with bloodhounds, for they remember how H.G. Wells, the invisible man, could be both smelt and touched, though he could not be seen. But no shrieks ever suggest that some intruder has received a shock. No movements of the wire ever betray an invisible climber. The bloodhounds never give a cry. Yet still the believer is not convinced. But there is a gardener, invisible and tangible and sensible to the electric shocks. A gardener who has no scent and makes no sound. A gardener who comes secretly to look after the garden which he loves. At last the skeptic despairs. But what remains of your original assertion? Just how does what you call an invisible, intangible, eternally elusive gardener differ from an imaginary gardener or even from no gardener at all? End quote. Now, the purpose of this parable is to show that even if God were to exist, that a God as described by the theist, or at least wisdoms and the common skeptical understanding of it, would be indistinguishable from no God at all. So, why not simply accept Occam's razor and believe that there is no God at all, and rather than believe in an invisible, intangible, eternally elusive one? Well, the problem with all of this is that the analogy is not, well, analogous to what theists in general and Christians in specific say that God's activity in the world is like. Let's let's <clears throat> let's let's just alter the analogy a bit to make it actually analogous and you'll you'll see the obvious differences. Okay. This was this was how I wrote out the analogy. Once upon a time, two explorers came upon a clearing in the jungle. In the clearing were growing many blue flowers and many weeds. When they looked more closely at the garden, they found that it was actually extremely well tilled, that the flowers, not indigenous to the jungle, had been planted there, all of them blue. They found an intricately designed watering system whereby the foreign plants would be kept alive, and without it, they would not only die off, but they never would have been able to be planted in the first place. Along with these flowers, they find genetically engineered plants that were found to have extremely 
specific medicinal applications or other plants that were needed to absorb the natural acidity found in the jungle soil that would otherwise kill off these other flowers. One explorer says, some gardener must tend this plot. The other disagrees. There is no gardener. So they pitch their tents and set up a watch. No gardener is ever seen. But perhaps he is an invisible gardener. So they set up a barbed wire fence. They electrify it. They patrol with bloodhounds, for they remember how H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man could be both smelt and touched, though he could not be seen. But no shrieks ever suggest that some intruder has received a shock. No movements of the wire ever betray an invisible climber. The bloodhounds never give a cry, yet still the believer is not convinced. But there is a gardener, invisible and tangible and sensible to electric shocks, a gardener who has no scent and makes no sound, a gardener who comes secretly to look after the garden which he loves. At last the skeptic despairs. But what remains of your original assertion? Just how does what you call an invisible, intangible, eternally elusive gardener differ from an imaginary gardener, or even from no gardener at all? And yet, later in that day, the skeptic comes down to the, with a very severe illness, unknown to either explorer. He is sick for several days, and it looks as though he's going to die. Suddenly, one morning, they both awaken to a man from Tribe X in the jungle standing above them. The tribesman states that the gardener of the forest has directed him to come to the garden and tell the men that he found that there that all he has to do is to drink tea made from the red flower in the garden because the gardener put it there the night before for the dying explorer. They look and find that where all the flowers had previously been blue, there was now a small patch of red flowers. Later in the day, a man from tribe Y comes and tells the explorers the same thing, even though the tribes have no knowledge that the other even exists. At dusk, five more villagers from previously unknown villages, all unknown to each other, come and tell him the same message about the gardener, after drinking the tea, the explorer recovers. Now, now what the, should the skeptic think? That, that it is all coincidence? That, that there just has to be some natural explanation for it all because there's no direct empirical evidence of the gardener? Or is it possible that indirect evidence in the form of design, fine-tuning, specified complexity, information... Varied independent experience, testimony, corroborated testimony from other independent sources, and so on and so forth, can count as valid evidence for the existence of the otherwise directly undetectable gardener. It seems obvious to me that when, when Ra and others demand quote-unquote scientific evidence, but don't allow for these types of explanations, don't allow for uh, the, the types of explanations from design and fine-tuning, because for those to work, you need to presuppose God. And I say this as a presuppositionalist. We were talking about logic. That's fine. I'm actually, I'm actually granting them that let's, let's, let's allow them the use of logic. Can these abductive arguments from data points serve as evidence for the existence of God? Why not? That's what's actually analogous when it comes to the fine-tuning, specified complexity, when it comes to, to, to the possibility of a life-permitting universe, when it comes to abiogenesis, when it comes to, uh, to, to multiple uh, corroborated testimony from independent sources, all dealing uh, with, with miraculous or with supernatural claims or when it comes to, to, to answer prayer claims and so on and so forth. We have this mountain of evidence it's just not the type of repeatable, empirical, direct evidence where it's like, okay, what shape is God? God is that shape because I can see him with my eyes. I can test him in this test tube. It's not that type of evidence. 
but abductive reasoning is still evidence. I, I, I did I talked about this in my debate with R and Raw. We don't need direct evidence to infer that God is the best explanation for something. We do this all the time. And I gave SETI as an example. When SETI, the, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, <clears throat> is out scanning the sky, if they were to pick up a radio signal of alternating frequencies where it goes through the first 100 prime numbers and then starts over, and the first 100 prime numbers and then starts over, or the information can be decoded to be a, blue sh- a, a blueprint for a working vehicle, we don't. We might not have direct empirical evidence. We don't know where it's coming from. Maybe we don't know. Uh, we don't know who it is. We don't know what species. We don't know what they look like. We don't. We don't know what their origins. We don't have an explanation for the explanation. But we're perfectly within our rational capacity to abduce, uh, to go to the best explanation. That mind is the best explanation. That intentionality is the best explanation. We have zero counterexamples to this. We have zero counterexamples where you have specified complex information that gives teleological information that we don't think that mind is a reasonable or indeed plausible explanation for. The only one that's up for debate is, are, are things like uh, uh, specified complexity in, in the human genome and in, in, in genetic information and the fine-tuning of the universe. Those two meta questions are the only two where, where the atheists, where the unbeliever is going to be like, oh, well, you're just being stupid. You have no reason to infer intelligence. I'm sorry, but in every single analogous case, not only do we think that it's reasonable to infer intelligence as the best explanation, we typically think it is the best, most plausible, sometimes only reasonable explanation. And that's one of the arguments for the existence of God. Thank you again for joining me. Good night and God bless.